you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Munn Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, we hear from a producer and engineer who restore and reissue vintage music recordings. But what happens if you can't release an album on vinyl? A recent catastrophic fire has the industry worried. And in the play The Father, Alfred Molina's character suffers from dementia, the same illness afflicting his wife of 30 years. One reason why I wanted to do the play was that I wanted to turn the last 10 years of my family's experience into something tangible, into something that we can be proud of. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. In the play The Father, Alfred Molina plays a man who is lost in time and place. Furniture appears to rearrange itself. People look drastically different from one moment to the next. Time is moving, but not in a straight line, as his character's memory fails more and more. Molina's character has dementia. It's an illness that's very close to the actor's own family. But Molina isn't entirely alone on his character's journey. The father is written in a way that brings the audience inside his confusion and vulnerability. In the same way that our own memories are never linear, you know, our dreams are not linear, neither is the play. And so the scenes go back and forth in time or seemingly, but it's all Really, the, the, the main conceit is, is that it's all happening, in a sense, inside my character's head. What the playwright has done through the, through the way he's wrought the play, as it were, the way he's made the, the, the architecture of the play, is that the audience is going through the same kind of nonlinear confusion that the, that the character is. And does the character understand his own condition? Because I think that's part of the conversation that the play really sparks. Like, how much... Are we projecting onto him about what he mm. should and should not understand versus what he's really capable of comprehending? Yeah, that, that's an intriguing question. Uh, it, it, and it's one that we grappled with constantly in rehearsal because we were constantly trying to rationalize the irrational. And, it, and, and that's always very, very hard. But I think ultimately he doesn't. But there's a point in very towards near the end of the play, there's a point where he says, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, where the character says, I don't understand what's happening anymore. And I think that's the closest he gets to a kind of sense of what's happened to him. There is some beautiful writing about characters with memory issues. And I want to read a little bit from the Alice Monroe short story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain, which Sarah Polly made into a movie away from her. There's two characters, Grant and Fiona, and Grant goes to visit Fiona in an assisted living facility. And this is what Alice Monroe writes. She treated him with a distracted social sort of kindness that was successful in keeping him from asking 
the most obvious, the most necessary question, did she remember him as her husband of nearly 50 years? He got the impression that she would be embarrassed by such a question, embarrassed not for herself, but for him. It's such a beautiful moment in that Mm -hmm. story. And it's about how people are grappling with what somebody else that they care about understands. And that seems so central to this play as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think it's the central experience for anyone who has had to deal with um, a family member, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's been through this, who's gone through this. Um, it, it, you know, uh, it's no secret my wife is now in her 10th year um, as an Alzheimer's um, sufferer. Uh, and that was one of the first things that as a family we learned to deal with was not to, not to ask her if she remembered anything particularly if she remembered us or any particular, you know, and, and it's the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing because you, you, you desperately want them to remember you. You want them to recognize you. And I always describe it as a, as a beautiful collection of mosaic, like a beautiful mosaic, and one by one these tiles fall off and you, you, know, and you keep wanting to put them back and it's and it's very hard and and when you know when you talk to neurologists and doctors you know they they all say the same thing you know don't uh, don't say do you remember because all that does is create a kind of tension and a fear and a and a, a sort of it makes people vulnerable in a way that's not that's not good for them and yet so many characters in this play when they're speaking to andre say well don't you remember yeah. or that's not right or that's not yeah. what happened that's right and they he, say and the he, wrong thing that's right and he reacts very aggressively very often towards them you know he 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 sort of turns it into a a, a kind of attack on them you know and it, it's it's why the writing is so the writing on one level seems to be rather sparse you know there are no long long speeches characters aren't talking in any kind of metaphorical way but that that's that kind of spareness if you like is is what makes it so sort of i think eloquent you have a play as written and you have a life as experienced with your wife how do those two overlap and what information do you take away from what you've seen with your wife that informs the way you approach this character well uh, i the, the experience obviously informs the work uh, it it can't help but do that um but also uh, i i i've used that experience um i've used it sort of hopefully creatively and in a way that's respectful and what one thing that i wanted to to do one reason why i wanted to do the play was that i wanted it to i wanted to turn the last 10 years of my family's experience into something um tangible into something that we can be proud of um, I remember years ago when I was still studying, when I was at drama school. Uh, I remember uh, um, one of uh, one of my fellow students w- got very badly injured and had to drop out of school for a while. And uh, his uh, one of our teachers said, "You know, any creative person's obligation is to turn pain into art," and that's that's what I'm trying to do. We're talking with Alfred Molina about his play, The Father, which is now at the Pasadena Playhouse. This is a story about a father, and it's a story about that father's daughter. And for people around my age who have parents who are still alive, that might be in their late 80s or their 90s, this play is also 
hard to watch because it's starting to touch on issues that are starting to become factors in their lives. And watching this play with a father who is sharp, but, you know, is approaching 90, is really challenging. And I'm wondering, as a child of somebody who is older, what do you think this play has to say about how we deal with people who are going through memory issues and what we can learn from it about how we talk and understand them? Well, I think, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like that, but I do know that we're reaching epidemic proportions, certainly in this country, and, and more and more people are going to be touched by it in some shape or form. But I think what we understand by seeing a play like this and, and, and experiencing an evening like this is the inevitability of it. That you know, I mean, um, Touchwood, your dad will stay sharp as he gets, you know, as he gets older, and 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 you know, he, he may deal with other frailties, but but he'll, you know, if he can, if he can still, if he still knows what a piece of toast is, that that's fantastic, uh, and you know, and I wish him well. But the truth is, for many many people, it's going to be it, it's a it's a it's a journey of diminishing returns, and you you know. Uh, those mosaic tiles keep falling off, and and all we can do is uh, just try and and be there. You know, I mean, I think it's interesting, for instance, that over the last few years, most of the research into dementia and Alzheimer's has shifted from trying to find a cure to looking for um, more effective preventative measures to you know at least put it off longer or detect it sooner, which is I think a much more effective way of of dealing with it because. At some point or other, we're all going to get it. At some point or other, something's going to get us, you know, and sort of being, you know, forewarned is forearmed, I think. The physical manifestations of your character on stage are also noticeable. When we first see Andre, he's doing a crossword puzzle, that he's dressed to the nines, he's moving confidently, and as the story progresses, and we don't really know over what time period, that's kind of a mystery or at least, uh, you know, open to interpretation, He's unable to get dressed or he's kind of developing some erratic movements. When you're thinking about the physical manifestations of what you wanted to communicate, what was your approach and what did you talk about with your director? Well, a, a lot of it was was what I witnessed with, with my wife, um, the, the, the physical um, decline. She was, you know, a very vibrant, very active woman. She she was an actor, a writer. She... she uh, she was engaged in life in a very positive and joyous way. And, you know, as a family, we, we watched her decline. And I noticed there were certain things that I noticed with other people, um, you know, who were going through the same thing. There are certain physical changes that are universal, it seems, to everyone who, you know, the, the shaking and the, the, sh- the change in one's gait for instance, is very, very noticeable. The uh, uh, the way that um, a person who's who may have stood up strong with a you know with a with a good strong you know upright spine suddenly walks with a curved spine and walks you know kind of with a sort of shuffle. All those things are very typical, and it was really just applying it in a way that was appropriate to to the character. You know, we we are, you know it's and it's not thing. And, and and I'm I'm certainly not ashamed of it although i remember when when my mother passed away 
my brother and I were were at um, you know she was Italian, so she had an open casket, a very traditional kind of burial, and people came and paid their respects. And my brother, I said to my brother, "I'm going to remember this moment because it might come in handy one day." And I wasn't ashamed to say that. I, you know, I'm an actor; that's what I do, you know. And I knew that this moment had a really there was a profound basis to this you know this moment was meaningful and it was something that i know i could use and my my brother got very angry with me but you know i and i did the same thing here you know i i i tried to turn some i i tried to turn the experience that we all had into something that's hopefully in some way um cathartic and and you know artful i want to ask you about something your wife jill gascoigne wrote and that is lillian mm-hmm. that i think you hope to turn into a film is that right that's and direct. right yeah tell us right. about that story and how it's important to you well it was uh it was jill's second novel uh and it was her favorite and mine and we talked you know before she got ill we talked a lot about i i kept saying to her this is very filmic it's a very filmic book it's it's got uh, you know this could be a great movie and you know we talked about it a lot, but we never. But then, as uh, as her illness, you know, developed, you know, we, we, we sort of pushed it onto the back burner, as it were. And again, as part of wanting to make sense of the last ten years, I I just I thought I'd try and turn it into a film. So we we we've you know we we've got a script and we've got producers and we have a budget, and now we're just trying to you know get it get it cast and and the 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 the, the story is basically a. a a story of a, a middle-aged woman who reaches a kind of emotional and physical crisis in her life and uh, decides to take a complete sort of right turn and go in a completely different direction. And she meets and falls in love with a woman, and uh, um, it's how they how they build that life. Alfred Molina, so good to see you. Thank you. Alfred Molina stars in The Father. It's at the Pasadena Playhouse through March 1st. Coming up on The Frame, a record label that specializes in restoring and reissuing vintage recordings. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. In 2008, a spectacular fire on the Universal Studios lot destroyed hundreds of master recordings by many prominent musicians. The full extent of the damage is still not fully known. Fortunately, there are record labels devoted to preserving and releasing old recordings. The Frame contributor Tim Grieving learned how it's done. My name is Cheryl Pavelski. I'm the co-founder and owner of Omnivore Recordings, and I am a historical record producer. My name is Michael Graves. I'm a mastering engineer. I specialize in audio restoration. I visited these two at Graves' house in Altadena, which is his makeshift restoration studio. One room is full of reel-to-reel tape decks. A dehydrator oven and a record vacuum. 
In the back is a mixing board and a digital workspace. Graves' job is to take old, sometimes ancient recordings and give them a sonic spit shine. Okay, so this is Hank Williams. This is right off the record. Okay, now play it on a nice turntable with the right needle, vacuumed record, and then it's gone through all my digital restoration and we end up with this. Omnivore puts out historical music across all genres, from popular country artists like Hank Williams, to a never-before-released album by Harry Nilsson, to 1970s West African funk. Whether they're releasing it digitally, on CD, or on vinyl, Cheryl Pavelski says they always try to go back to the earliest, purest source. Now, some of those sources may be digital, right? But the preference, if you're going to make a vinyl record in 2019, is source it from analog. So it's all analog in the chain. So you use an analog tape, and you cut the acetate on a lathe that has the capabilities to skip any digital stage. In the case of the Hank Williams record, though... The sources are acetates. Acetate discs are basically old-school phonograph records. And uh, a colleague of ours digitized these recordings in the late 80s, I believe. That's what we worked from. We still have the sources to go back to, but they had deteriorated to a state where the digitized versions that he made 25, 30 years ago are are better than what the originals are right now. So even analog purists have to concede to digital sometimes. Like Pavelski, a veteran Grammy-winning producer who worked at Rhino and EMI Capital Records before she co-founded Omnivore in 2010. Digital technology has gotten so good that high-resolution files, it's inaudible, the difference. <laughs> it had to be proven to me because I, I was very much the purist and wanted to stay all analog. But eventually... As the resolution and the bit rates and everything got better, you know, somebody sent me some um, test pressings one time that were all high resolution, digitally sourced, and I just had to say, this sounds fantastic. So sometimes you have to um, introduce digital into the chain, and if it's done properly, it's not a bad thing. Digital restoration also means that if the original source deteriorates or burns up in a fire, the recording lives on. It's hard to know what all was irreparably lost in the Universal Fire, but Pavelski knows at least this much. Well, the ability to go back to the Stone Cold original, you know, um, if you want to make copies from something, you don't want to make a copy from a copy, right? If copy tapes didn't exist, if safeties didn't exist, like they don't on a lot of multi-tracks, then you actually did lose uh, original music that you can't get back. Alternate takes, outtakes, studio chatter... That's, that's the kind of stuff that is completely irreplaceable. And when it comes to preservation, digital doesn't mean safer. Computer files are perhaps even more impermanent than analog media. And I should know. I first interviewed Cheryl Pavelski and Michael Graves for this story back in July and somehow lost the recording. It's a good thing I wasn't Hank Williams' engineer. For The Frame, I'm Tim Grieving. And now I got enough gallop getting out I'm leaving now I'm a long gone daddy I don't need you anyhow 
So that's how you restore vintage recordings. But what if you can't even get an album made anymore? That's next on The Frame. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The renaissance in vinyl records isn't slowing down. Last year, nearly 19 million albums were sold, a 14.5% increase over 2018. It's almost a given now that new recordings will get a vinyl release. You just heard a story about a record label that specializes in restoring and reissuing vintage recordings. But what if you can't even get a vinyl record made anymore? That's now a concern because of a recent fire in the desert town of Banning that destroyed the Apollo Master Plant. It was one of only two places in the world that manufactures a key component in the making of vinyl records, what's called a blank lacquer. Here's L.A. Times pop music writer Randall Roberts explaining how it works. A lacquer is the equivalent of a negative for a film the um, lacquer is the master from which all other records are cut. A new release by an artist who've never put that record out on vinyl before, they of course need a lacquer and they need to hire a mastering engineer who's responsible for translating their master tape onto a lacquer, literally cutting the sound wave, the groove into this blank black kind of mirror-like disc. So does that work for new releases, for catalog releases? If you've run out of blank lacquers, how do you make new records? Well, it only applies for new releases or new reissues that haven't come to market before, for the most part. If an artist like Queen, for example, or the Beatles, obviously they have already pressed a lot of records. And those stampers, they're called, are available and warehoused at record pressing plants. So if Capitol Records runs out of a stock of Beatles releases, they just order another one and it goes through the press. Capitol Records actually used to own Apollo, but with the advent of CDs, got out of that business. And as vinyl has had a resurgence, uh, Apollo and a Japanese company, MDC, have pretty much got complete control over the market for these blanks. How did that happen? How did two companies end up with such accumulated power in the market? When the major labels decided that compact discs were the future for them. They quickly sold what they owned. A lot of the labels owned their own systems, presses, pressing companies. They just unloaded all of their stuff without really any concern for whether vinyl would be back and be a profitable format for them in the future. So when that happened, you know, it was consolidation. It was companies buying companies until this company called Apollo bought it and they're based in Camarillo. 
We're talking with Randall Roberts at the L.A. Times about the catastrophic fire at Apollo Masters. You quote somebody in the story saying, what happens if Apollo goes out of business? They didn't really contemplate the fire, but now there's been a fire. Is there going to be a real problem in getting blank discs to strike new vinyl records? Not in the next six months because their stock, a lot of the bigger pressing companies order their supply annually. For example, I talked to Liz Dunster at Erica Records in Buena Park, and she orders both from Apollo and from MDC in Japan, and she just completed an order. She just received an order. So so she's fine, and a lot of people are fine. But the question is, nine months or a year from now, when the stock dwindles, the question is the timeline on when a new U.S.-based manufacturer can fill the hole left by the Apollo fire. So what has Apollo said? Do they have plans to rebuild? How much cleanup are they facing? What happens for the company? They have only issued one statement on their website acknowledging the fire and expressing relief that no one was hurt or injured in the fire. I've reached out to them a few times and haven't heard back from them. And considering the costs of manufacturing in California overall, it would be hard to justify rebuilding in Banning where they are slash were. And they have a lot of cleaning up to do before they can even consider that because there were five or six explosions. I was out there and it was a mess. Your story cites some sort of secret formula. It sounds like the recipe for Coca-Cola that Apollo has. Would that make it difficult for another company to start basically from scratch and try to replicate what it is that Apollo does so well? Well, I think that it's it's not so secretive a sauce that another manufacturer wouldn't be able to step in. I mean, there's institutional knowledge at Apollo. There are geniuses at Apollo who know this machinery and know the chemistry. And um, I'm sure that they will pass on the information. There is a consortium of vinyl pressers and companies involved in in the industry called the Vinyl Alliance, who released a statement over the weekend, and they expressed confidence that some sort of new solution can be found within the next year. Randall Roberts covers pop music at the L.A. Times. He's the author of the article, How a Fire in the Inland Empire Could Spell Doom for the Worldwide Vinyl LP Boom. Randall, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, John. And that'll do it for today. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find us at The Frame. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. 
We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.